Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jan Ellie, and my guild is the Izzet. Hi, I'm Andrew Weissel, and my guild is the Simic. Hi, I'm Carrie Thomas, and my guild is the Azorius. But not like the problematic Azorius, you know, the cool Azorius. Which ones are the cool Azorius? There are aren't the cool Azorius, that's the point of the Azorius. Target and imprison minorities on the plane of Ravnica. <laughs> that's, the, that's the simple answer. Yeah, alright, fair enough. It's fair okay, enough. and um, I'm not the Simic that forced genetic modifications on the population and then kill them later because of it. Because Momor Vig is a, is a villain and a monster and he's awful. There's absolutely nothing problematic about each of the guilds on Ravnica, you know? No, they're they're the worst. And anytime <laughs> I... I see guild discourse on the internet somewhere, where, where people are like, yeah, well, your favorite guild did this. Well, yeah, but your favorite guild did that. Well, everyone's correct. All the guilds suck. That's the core <laughs> of Ravnica's problems. Remember, the uh, now I'm blanking on the title for that uh, Ixalan story. I am definitely the uh kind of visit who blows things up for experiments with no regard to who gets hurt in the process <laughs> so no no qualifications there i love my whole guild remember <laughs> the arbiter of law left chaos in his wake <gasps> dun 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 okay but that's neither so, here nor there because we got battle bond to talk oh about. it's so good so battle bond um just some a quick we have previews this week we have now seen all of the legendary pairs last time we talked about uh zinder split and okan this time uh we're going to talk about all of the five pairs we have left uh because we had what six pairs of new legends so 12 new legends total yep the world building is interesting uh we have not seen really anything outside of the stadium at valor's reach but kylum just from what we learned here is a very diverse plane and we'll get into some of the 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 new uh creature types we've seen there but it's one of the more diverse planes when it comes to sentient or sapient species and humanoid species there are tons of sports references of course like every instant sorcery is some kind of sports reference there's like huddle up yep. uh the crowd goes wild yeah there's there's so many great top down stuff in this set, super great work by uh, Melissa Lee and Michael Chow on the set. It's so much fun. There are vendors in the stadium, stadium vendors that are little goblins with potions and candy apples. <laughs> like the, ugh, these, I love these goblins, the, the floopy-eared goblins. We'll talk about them in a minute. Yeah, it's this is so much fun. It's exactly all the positive, fun, wild, vibrant, dynamic, entertaining things about sports. Part of it that unconsciously struck me was i was going to compare the art for the crowd goes wild to the chandelier art from the computer game where we saw a whole bunch of different races together and then i realized the only reason i'm making that comparison is yeah there's like a lot of different races on this plane that all look extremely colorful and diverse and there's cosplay like yeah like the you, you you see like in the real world you go to Raiders games and there's the fans down in the black hole that have like the full kiss outfits with the spikes and the Vader helmets and all the Raiders gear painted up in uh, black and silver and you know in this art um there's like goblins dressed like Zinder Split it's great like this is fantastic this is it's just 
the essence of fun on every single card. Yeah, so the crowd goes wild, has the goblin cosplaying Zinder Split, and then Cheering Fanatic is another goblin cosplaying uh, Sylvia Brightspear, who we'll talk about in just a second. But I love that A, goblins are, are the cosplayers, because it's kind of hilarious. And B, I just love these goblins with like with their big floopy ears. It's it's I, I've really fallen in love with these guys, and I'm sad that we were probably not getting a legendary goblin out of this set. Yeah. So I'll have to wait for the next return. All right, so let's talk about some of those other legends that we've seen. The first one caused a bit of consternation when they were revealed, although I should note uh, our friend Kaburi actually called this when we first saw the pack art uh, weeks ago. Will and Rowan Kenrith are a pair of planeswalking twins. Uh, they have paired powers. Will is a ice mage. Rowan is a fire mage, specifically fire that looks a little bit like fireworks, which is appropriate for the flashy style. Uh, they definitely, all of these pairs fall into a trope of some kind. So the, the twins here fall into the super twins trope that we've seen a whole bunch before in popular culture. You've got the wonder twins, you've got the uh, Fenris twins or the Von, Struck, uh, Von Strucker twins who are the uh, they're actually the stars of the uh, X-Men TV show Gifted that uh, is currently on the air. You've got Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. So this kind of thing is very common in pop culture. And they're the first blonde planeswalkers. Only took... So so of all, of all the planeswalker cards, they are the 41st and 42nd, I believe, to get cards. Which is a long time to get the blondes yeah. in there. Yeah. Well, to be fair, Urza was a blonde too, but his he had an uncard and he was gray by the time. So. Yeah, by the t he's thousands <laughs> of years old by that point. I'm and entirely true. Is he really blonde when he's a planeswalker because his body's really just a projection of his soul's will and not really physically there? It could be whatever he wants, and I don't think that counts. You know? <laughs> So one of the things that came up around Will and Rowan was um, how common uh, Planeswalker Sparks are and how unlikely it is that uh, there would be Planeswalker Twins. But I think in reality, we here at the cast agree uh, that somewhere in the multiverse, there were bound to be Planeswalker Twins that sparked. We don't know anything about their background. We don't know how they sparked or... Um, basically anything about them yet we just know their name that they're twins and uh that they are planeswalkers so it's uh pretty cool they're not originally from kylum they're from somewhere else we don't know where that somewhere else is yet yeah it is my greatest fear that they do not end up on the mothership planeswalkers page just out of apathy <laughs> more than anything <laughs> they got uh doretti up there yeah. So that's true. and there, yeah, and there was a Doretti up there. I, the old Commander fourteen all got their profiles put yeah. up there. So and Kaya. So we'll see. When, oh, god. I assume they will be. Yeah, it usually is around like release time that they'll finally get up there. Uh, but it's funny because because of the partner mechanic, uh, they have they can be your commander, uh, which is not something we expected to see. This is basically a commander set. Pretty much. The, the jokes have been going around that 
this is actually just Commander Masters. <laughs> which is pretty accurate considering the reprints that this set has. But that's not really part of our show. So the next pair we want to talk about is Vitrus the Veiled and Gorm the Great. Uh, these two fall into kind of the, the assassin and the brute or the rogue and the brute uh, archetype. Uh, but what is very cool is Vitrus is our first legendary Azra. The Azra we learned, according to Allison Lurs, who will have a world building article up. We're not sure when, probably after when this podcast comes out. Uh, we learned that they have distant demonic ancestry. So they are a lot like the tieflings from uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Weird. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing tieflings correctly. W- weird when, when D&D stuff comes into magic. How's that even happen? It's like they're in the same building. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> it's like a it's like a mystery. It's, I don't know. It, you would think that... Um, they had like a like a hallway where they could just walk down to talk to one another, but I don't know. That sounds crazy. Uh, so I should note that uh, these aren't the first instance of like a human demon hybrid. We don't know if the Azra are part human, but based on their humanoid features, they seem like it a little bit. They have elfish ears as well, so maybe they're part elf in there too. But Ravnica actually had half-demons as well. The old Ravnica novels talked about it, uh, and they were fairly common. Like They popped up in at least two of the novels that they were part demons, and they're usually part of the Rakdos guild because, of course, they are. Uh, the Azran name, I think the etymology comes from uh, the Angel of Destruction and Renewal, Azrael. Uh, I don't know much more than that. Uh, sounds like it might be the origin. I don't know. What do you two think? I buy it. I have nothing better, so I buy it. <laughs> and like, like there, there's a good reason not to use Tiefling, because that name is kind of long. The tricky part about creature types is that the longer they are, the fewer of them you can put on a type line. So if they're nice mm-hmm. and short, like Azra... You can do a legendary creature, Azra, Assassin, and that all fits on the type line, which is good. And I'm glad they have a new name. And also kind of, I think it's easier to understand for people who don't know D&D and I think helps separate them from any connotations that Tieflings have in D&D. So they can kind of be their own thing, but kind of also being the same thing at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wonder if they'll introduce like an angelic ancestry race as well. So let's move on to Peer Imaginative Rascal and Toothy Imaginary Friend, which is just a hilarious riff on the boy in his blob trope. Yeah, Peer is literally a child. Calvin and Hobbes. Carrie and I talked a little bit about Peer and Toothy in our uh, um, announcement day recap episode. But yeah, it's really it's a it's another trope thing. It's. It's a very different take on the kind of pit fighter trope because <laughs> um, you usually don't see kids in pit fights and you don't usually see imaginary friends in pit fights. Um, I also like that its name is Toothy. Like they just went <laughs> really silly with it, which is appropriate for this set. Um, and you, you can't do that in most magic sets. So um, leveraging battle bonds fun tone that's really important and they did a great job with this pair it's also pretty hard to root against a child <laughs> yeah 
I don't know. There are some awful kids in the world. <laughs> well, I would say we got very concerned before we learned these are non-lethal matches. Um, <laughs> because this seems like an irresponsible thing to do for a, uh, a child to be involved in a death match. But thankfully, it's not. Uh, the one thing I did want to note is we saw the art for Pierre's whim. And uh, the, the skin tone doesn't really match up with Pierre. Uh, which seems like a art direction issue, but like the Pierre's whim has Pierre as essentially a very light-skinned, um, what is typically referred to as like white passing uh, skin tone. His eyes are even green, while you know Pierre on Imaginative Rascal and on Toothy Imaginary Friend, he is a like a, a medium brown skin tone, uh, leaning a little bit towards the dark. Uh, and they basically, if it weren't for Toothy, it would be two different boys. And, you know, so I have a lot of issues with, with Chandra that I don't usually bring up and I'm not going to get into here. Uh, but when it comes to like skin tone and, and racial identity, keeping that consistent, especially in the art direction is important because they've let things like Liliana, who was originally, leaning middle eastern and she's just straight up white now uh chandra they've retconned to be biracial but she still looks gaelic you know you gotta these things are important to people and making sure that the art direction is consistent and that you don't just tell someone you know it's a it's a boy with a blob um, or you don't just tell someone it's a a person of color you get specific with like skin tone or have the artists work with one another to make sure that it comes out that it doesn't look like you had a whitewashed version of the character in the same set like throughout magic's history it's always been kind of gideon from the original um intention for him or moving in a whitewashed direction frankly it, in um, gideon's defense they've done a lot of work fixing that yeah but that one time doesn't make up for all these other times but then you look at characters like Gideon of the Trials versus Gideon the Marshall Paragon, which are supposed to be both Gideon and Amonkhet, but one looks a lot less Mediterranean slash Greek than intended. So, And yeah, I guess let me just mention my, because not all everyone who's going to be listening to this understands. So, you know, my wife is Indian. I have a half Indian son. So when they bring in a red haired, freckled, Gaelic looking woman, name her Chandra, and make her mother a medium brown skin tone Indian woman. Uh, I, I have some issues with that. Well, it's it's not even like Kieran was pale either. No, it wasn't. Although his skin tone his skin tone was another great example of that, because in Pia and Kieran Nalar, he looks uh, very different between the promo art and the regular art for him. Yeah. Anyway, um, we that was not a. This can be a much longer topic. We just wanted to mention it for yeah, Pierce. Long Wim. story short, black kid looks like a white kid in one art, and that's really crappy. So wizards do, do better. better. Yeah. So the next pair we want to talk about is Regna the Redeemer and Crav the Unredeemed, which are a pair of angel and demon lovers. Like the ship on that. So so <laughs> sailed very quickly. I, I I feel like I have to explain this in chronologically how i saw this go down on the internet so regna and crav were previewed and tumblr immediately said they're in love they're doing it they're a couple and i was like wow you guys jump on things fast but that's fine that would be neat later that day it gets confirmed they are lovers 
and Tumblr's like, yeah! Yeah, it was in, like, the flavor text of, like, the very next card spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then today we get another card that's all about their love, and it's, there's just, like, nobody is gonna miss that this angel and this demon are together uh, and that's fantastic it's well and like like it's so rare that we actually get to see couples period in magic and even rarer when we get to see non-human couples that this is it's just this is just so fun um especially because they're such an odd couple because they're literally mana constructs of opposite colors flavorfully i wonder like what actually like brought them together i think the names might be a hint maybe regna is hanging around krav to try and redeem him uh and in the process they kind of just bonded beyond that <laughs> but krav is still the unredeemed well, he's, but he's trying he's he's trying he is trying he only eats the little warriors his wife makes um <laughs> Yeah. All right, so the next pair we want to talk about is the How to Train Your Dragon pair, uh, which is Sylvia Brightspear and Corvath Brightflame, uh, which was just a very cool trope to invoke. That's the uh, the white-red combo there, who are like, they are both tribal for the other tri- other's tribe. So like Sylvia boosts dragons and Corvath boosts knights. Um, and I, I just thought it was that a very cool idea. It's very flavorful. Uh, our good friend Shivam Butt uh, mentioned on Twitter that uh, it seemed like a reference to Dragonlance, which I don't really know anything about. But there's apparently a uh, like a lineage and a sword called the Bright Blade uh, in Dragonlance. Interesting. Yeah, I thought it was cute because they did the dual decks knight versus dragons however many years ago now and now we have literally a white knight whose mount is a big scary fire breathing dragon but there's pals instead of enemies like this it's so fun that this is a trope that gets played with and and toyed around in a new and exciting way this this set is just awesome like i can't stop smiling when i look at these cards yeah, I, I like the flavor of it a lot. I think my only disappointment is that we're not going to be getting one of these floopy-eared goblins as a legendary, <laughs> especially the one on the card I'm picking as my flavor gem, uh, <laughs> which we'll talk about in just one second. But why don't, Andrew, why don't you talk about sh- Soaring Show-Off? Yeah, uh, so we have a Peafowl Aven for the first time in Magic. Uh, something I love seeing in Magic is when we get these uh, humanoid animal races and they play with either um, local fauna that can bring out the flavor. Like we saw this in Tarkir where we had desert havens um, as vultures. And this is another time where if you want to make an exciting, flashy, colorful, fun set, a male peafowl, is exactly where you want to go. This The figure on this card is throwing roses out to his adoring fans as he flies by, and his wings are majestic, and his tail is so long and flashy. Like, it's the exact kind of spectacle you want in this set. So, that's super neat. I hope as magic continues, we get to see all kinds of different Avon. 
um, different Leonin. We've seen we've seen a couple Leonin. We've seen Jaguars. We've seen uh, Black Panthers. We've seen Lions. Um, we've now seen big fluffy Malamutes and Jackals for dog people. Uh, all kinds of bug people. Like like the more the more diversity in these kind of animal races we get, the more excited I am. And I'm just holding out hope that one day, one day, we get Kiwi Aven. They'd be so cute. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I wanted to mention before I get to my personal favorite card from this set, I do want to mention real quick. I think it's amazing that we got a partner pair that is a uh, human and dog playing fetch. Yup. The Chakram (laughs) Slinger and Chakram Retriever. uh, There's an uncommon cycle of partners also that are not legendary. So when... They're not like lore specific, but they they are very cool. There's a uh, the father. There's the father son team is cool also. Like the proud mentor yeah. and impetuous protege. Yeah, but yeah, I really liked the uh, the blue elemental hound retrieving the chakram for its master. The <laughs> the one I wanted to mention is last one standing, which is uh, it's a wrath spell where you pick one creature to not be destroyed by the wrath at random and it's just this artwork of this triumphant looking dorky goblin standing there with this burning sword high up in the air so triumphant uh on top of like a a pile of like unconscious uh foes that he's defeated (laughs) or um and underneath the flavor text just says some train all their lives for a shot at the title some just get really, really lucky. <laughs> and this is just absolutely my favorite flavor in the set. So with that, uh, one of the other pieces of news I wanted to talk about is uh, Magic Story Podcast, Otaria and the Cabal. This was the last Magic Story Podcast, and I'm sad because this is the last one we're going to get with the duo of Ethan Fleischer and Kelly Diggs, unless they do one on the side. Um, where they talked all about, as I said, Otaria and the Cabal. The one thing I wanted to mention from there, and I will let uh, Carrie mention something they wanted to mention as well. Uh, the one thing I wanted to mention was uh, they noted that Elspeth's pit fight from Scars of Mirrodin, the webcomic Gathering Forces, was probably a Cabal pit fight because the Cabal just three years ago, had been in Urborg, and they were very unlikely to allow, you know, independent pit fights. That's kind of their thing. Um, and there's something else from that comic that Carrie wanted to mention. We got a extremely shaky but tacit confirmation that Lord Windgrace is still, in fact, bound to Ur- Urborg and may have guided Elspeth and Koth, which was kind of my theory for going into Dominaria. It was the only thing I really had stake in. I'm post-mending. That was the most experience with Dominaria post-mending I had. But yeah, it's interesting to think. But as revealed in today's magic story, his panther warriors are pretty wiped out. And Ethan notes that, or Ethan notes that Wingrace was prophesied to return in Urborg's greatest time of need and still hasn't so wonder if he's lost that <laughs> connection entirely but who knows clearly that not hasn't happened yet well and as far as 
people on Dominaria predicting these uh, wild Returns. speculative <laughs> events. Um, That's a really good point. Last time the Keldon said something great was going to happen, that didn't. Um, yeah. Instead of all their... Twilight did not go their way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Kelvin Twilight ended up with all their old heroes becoming zombies and serving Frexia instead of returning from the dead to fight against the Frexians. So, oops. Yeah. Heroes of Memorial is also in pretty disrepair as far as we've seen, so... Yeah, that yeah. was in uh, a detail. I guess it's officially time to move on to Return to Dominaria, episode 11. Because yeah. um, we. The penultimate episode. We finally get to Urborg. And yeah, they mentioned that um, Belzenlock had the Cabal uh, desecrate the Hero's Memorial um, that was established after the Phyrexian invasion, which is interesting to me because that's where Elspeth and Koth went when um they tried to divine who they had to find and that only happened a couple years ago in the story so fairly recent that the cabal really started messing up urborg it's kind of amazing because that webcomic gathering forces was the only glimpse at dominaria we've had in like 11 years before dominaria the set yeah so we we had we had a small glimpse in Liliana's origin, but at that point we didn't know oh, where the yeah. Caligo mm. Forest was, and yeah, ultimately it w- kind of found out well, we, she's from impactful. a kind of a backwater town um, out in the boonies that nobody really cares about. So nothing important happened there, but yeah. We should note the hero's memorial is depicted on the card Martyr's Tomb. And Memorial to Folly. Um, so Martyr's Tomb is from way back in, I think it was an Apocalypse card. Yes. And then Memorial to Folly was just from Dominaria. Uh, they both depict the same place. So the, as they're traveling through, they meet the denizens of Urborg. We're introduced to the uh, spirit residents of Urborg who just kind of like notice these humans doing stuff, but don't really seem to care. Um and they meet with a group of people. Uh, I think, do they call them rebels? Does Joyor call them rebels or the resistance or something like that? That's yeah. what they are. Something like that, yeah. So they meet with a small group of, uh, I guess they would have been at one point Windgrace's acolytes. Uh, they're referred to as Panther Warriors, but that's an interesting flavor note. Um, so until I went back and looked at gathering forces following. Um, seeing Windgrace's, what's the name of the card with the cat warrior riding the uh, Pterodon in Dominaria? Windgrace Acolyte. It's literally Windgrace's Acolyte. Had to call okay. back to that comic in one exact way. Yeah, so um, back in the Gathering Forces comic, we saw a glimpse of uh, our first visual glimpse at Windgrace's Acolytes, and there was a panther folk riding like one of the Pterodons, which they. I'm the pterodons. I don't know why I'm pronouncing the P because I'm an idiot. That's like my thing. That's like point. the one thing everybody knows about pterodons is that you don't pronounce pterodons. the P. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so anyway, there was a, um, a panther folk riding a pterodon down in the middle of this battle with Phyrexians. 
Uh, and that was very visually called out in the card Windgrace's Acolyte. Well, the interesting thing is those Panther Warriors didn't exist on Urborg anymore. So um, Lord Windgrace was a Panther Planeswalker, but his people were all wiped out. And I was thinking, how did they get there? And so I went back and looked through the Catfolk on Dominaria, and there are indeed um, Panther Warriors uh, from Mirage and Visions that were the right coloring to be Windgrace's acolytes later. And because Jamura and Urborg are so close, they must have migrated over there at some point. There was a lot of cross-pollination between Northwest Jamura and like Corindor and Urborg and those places. Anyway, there, there are so, so many sense. cat folk on Tamanaria. Um, I, I did a whole article about cats of the multiverse and just on Dominaria, there are so many different cat people and it's not surprising that there were panther warriors somewhere else on the plane. From these panther warriors, they request a disguise and a location of a recent battle um, from these resistance folk, uh, which they will need for whatever plan they were brewing up at the time. We cut back to the weatherlight and Slimefoot uh, talks to some, I assume, what are Thalids uh, that have, were on the transplanted section of Yavamaya on Urborg. So they're the black Thalids or the green-black Thalids we've seen on cards up until this point. And there were a whole lot of them, so many of them that the uh, they named like three of them and they talked about how the names just went on and on and on. <laughs> And Slimefoot settled in to talk to them. So I'm sure Slimefoot meeting an army of new friends is not going to be relevant again later. Well, and it's, I think it was really fun and fascinating and speaks to phenomenal forethought as to Thalid biology and culture. Because last week we got a whole story about Slimefoot where it doesn't say a word to anybody else on the Wellerlight because everyone on the Wellerlight talks. But Thalids communicate with chemicals, so he can be all the way up on the weatherlight and communicate with other Thalids on the ground by just chemical signals in the air, which is super neat to me because creature design is fascinating and how creatures communicate, especially when they're sapient, is an important thing to figure out in that kind of design. And uh, I'm hoping the art book for Dominaria will go into a lot more detail on Thalid biology and culture. They remind me of a D&D race who I cannot recall the name of at the moment. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to respond to our tweet, just name them there. But they're from the Underdark, and they communicate basically the same way through like pheromones and things. Um, and they're a, like a fungal race that's very similar. Which, again, weird that magic would have similar races to dnd i don't know why that is did you know did you know both magic and dnd have humans oh my god really weird conspiracy <laughs> do you know they both have like james wyatt and a whole bunch of other people <laughs> james wyatt the ur human behind both magic and dnd uh so they dress chandra up as a bounty hunter and they give her like a scar and she kind of stinks afterwards there's a, a cute scene where raf um he, for the first time ever, is like not bragging about his abilities uh, when he goes to cast this illusion on Chandra to make her look like a hardened um, cabal bounty hunter. 
Uh, but there's an interesting note where Chandra and Jaya talk and Jaya says, you're ready for this. And Chandra says, thanks to you. Now we got a, like a brief glimpse of them training together in last week's episode, but I wonder exactly how much like control and skill Jaya learned. I'm sorry, Chandra learned from Jaya during her time training with her on the weather light. Like, I wonder if we'll see that demonstrated before the end of this. Cause she was holding what? 10 fireballs or something above her head 30 something 30 nuts which we've only really ever seen chandra just blast gouts of flame before so just that level of control will be interesting so then they approach the stronghold uh and liliana (laughs) liliana and this was was pretty interesting because she's starting to her her facade her facade is starting to crack a little bit, so she says, uh, "Don't get killed. It'd ruin everything." To Chandra and Gideon, and then as Chandra and Gideon are heading into the stronghold, uh, Chandra asks, "Do you really think she changed?" And Gideon says, "Yes, but I don't think she realized that yet," uh, which Chandra doesn't seem to believe, but um, it you know it's true from what we've seen so far. Liliana has definitely evolved after the uh, defeat on Amonkhet, as has Gideon. I think I'll only be convinced when she's able to enter the purifying flame. <laughs> oh, God. You know. <laughs> when she's ever... I, I don't think there's ever a point where she would survive that. No, no, not at all. I do think it's interesting that Gideon and Chandra disagree about whether Liliana has changed. Gideon is really hopeful that she has. Chandra is pretty doubtful. So we'll see who's right and see how they both think of her eventual move to Bolas aside that we know is coming. And uh, it's going to be good good drama. Chandra definitely felt my, her uh, Liliana's betrayal much more deeply in the battle with Bolas, while Gideon has seemed to grow close to her. And it's not clear how much of this is his usual optimism looking at the best in people and how much of it is actually an objective observation. But through the stories, she's at least been trying to change. A little bit. A little bit. As they are approaching the stronghold, Chandra and Gideon invite Teferi and Karn to join them in their attack on Bolas, on Ravnica. It's funny because there's a mention of Karn having gotten his spark again from Venser, and Karn mentions he was a good friend, which I guess we have to accept now. They knew each other more than... A day. I'm not gonna. It's just funny. I know because. So, backstory on why this comment is so weird. In Quest for Karn, Venser goes on and on and on about how great a friend he is with Karn and how Karn brought him to show him Mirrodin and they were best buddies and now he's gotta go find Karn to save him. And it's supposed to make Venser sacrifice to get Karn's spark back more dramatic. The problem is none of that could have ever happened because they knew each other for one day in Time Spiral and we know exactly what happened to them during that entire block. Their time is all accounted for and there is no point between Karn losing his spark and planeswalking back to Mirrodin to become a Frexian for a little bit and Venser becoming a planeswalker for them to have ever hung out. It's, it's the trilogy not... is literally ending with Venser's first planeswalk away from Dominaria, like yeah. to another plane. Exactly. So and Karn is already corrupted it's and have literally impossible 
due to the events of the time spiral block, for Fencer and Karn to ever have been good friends. I think the comment is in place for recognizing that Venser still went on the journey to rescue Karn, regardless. I think it makes sense there. I don't think it's a confirmation that somehow Quest for Karn's incongruities with everything else stated in Time Spiral Block is any way valid. So I think uh, someone pointed out that Gathering Forces also mentions that Karn trained uh, Venser in Artifice, at least for a time. So... I it's just a retcon. Yeah. I think of all the problems in the quest for Karn, that was one of the smallest ones. It was just weird because it was a rather large relationship retcon. It essentially established one where there clearly had not been time for one before. Joyra and like Sisse being friends, there was plenty of time for that. So then when were Karn and Venser friends? It would have had to have been before the mending, before Venser even built the ambulator like like did karn help him build the ambulator is that why the ambulator the, could could teleport the truth him? is that there's no clean answer because he would have had to have visited miradin for him for karn to have like quote unquote showed him how he sculpted a specific peak or mountain range or whatever but which could have happened pre-mending karn would have had that power but like we have to accept that there was i think some amount of friendship before then that just wasn't shown in story. That's the plainest way to put it. Um, I think Karn recognizes Venser in the Blind Eternities, just kind of like strangling in the first book of the Time Spiral Cycle. So you can you can do whatever headcanon you want, because odds are it's never going to be explored. No, and you know, sometimes you just have to go with it. It's still dumb. <laughs> we just like to rag on Scars of Mirrodin. It's funny because... Uh, Teferi, after they're being invited to go on the attack with Nicol Bolas, Teferi goes, oh, you mean the trap that we're going to walk into? And Chandra goes, hey, at least this time we know it's a trap, which is not better. <laughs> it's not really that much better. It's a lot better. Teferi then mentions, oh, yeah, I dueled. I really like that they brought up his duel with Nicol Bolas before. For those of you who have not read Time Spiral, so Venser is basically a conduit for Bolus's resurrection. Yeah, he's enthralled into being a conduit for Bolus's resurrection. He Nickel Bolus is revived and is like, "Oh good, now who am I going to kill for fun?" And Teferi comes in to try and save the day and Bolus literally cuts him to ribbons. He's just like strings of planeswalker flesh on the ground. But because he's an old walker, he's able to reassemble himself. And basically, the only reason he and everyone didn't die uh, is because Bolas was really impressed with Rada. Um, because she didn't like beg and or threaten. She was just like standing tall in front of Bolas. Because she's a badass. He, like, wanted, yeah, he wanted her as a servant, basically. So he like killed, you know, one of their red shirts, some Someone with a name. I don't remember what it was. A red shirt name. Uh, some rind. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was that. So Teferi was able to reassemble himself and did not try to fight Bolas again. Oh, what was the what was the character's name in Galaxy Quest? Who played the red shirt? Uh, Guy Flegman or uh, something? Guy. Well, his, his, his name was Guy, and then he didn't get a, uh, uh, a last name until the end of the movie. 
when they had like the next generation type show. That movie was great. <laughs> That's neither here nor there, but that movie's great. It was. I like it a lot. Teferi also mentions that he has great grandchildren at this point, and he, which was a, a bit of information to drop. We weren't sure if uh, his daughter had had her own children yet, but now Teferi has this extended clan, and he notes, you know, now that I have these uh, this family to look out for, like I find my perspective is much different. So he's finally getting that whole you have to worry about the individuals, not just like the greater good that ends up making you as much of a villain as the bad guys. I was really close. It's Guy Fleegman. <sighs> played by Sam Sam Rockwell is fantastic in everything he does. Anyway, if you love Star Trek and love parodies and have not seen Galaxy Quest, go see Galaxy Quest. The cast is phenomenal, even when one of those people is Tim Allen. <laughs> So Teferi casts a time spell, a very cool time spell. It's not a uh, thing he's done before or that I think he's done before that I've seen, uh, where he casts a spell on Chandra and Gideon so that they are the only things able to move through this like slow time bubble that's around them. So they are still moving very fast while everyone around them moves like at a super, super slow speed. And so they get all the way into the stronghold that way and cross through like this esophagus rib cage that gave me PTSD to reading uh, Scars of Mirrodin's novel, here, The Quest for Karn. here, I was like, oh, there's teeth. There's an entrance with teeth. Wow, this is horrible because they have those dang war <sighs> tunnels in Scars of Mirrodin Quest for Karn. Oh, my oh God. It's, it's just... A mirror of the engineer ship from Alien. I th- that's a much I better thing like... for it to be a reference of. Cre- creepy, that's true. creepy Geiger things. Just go with but go with like... the cool reference. <laughs> I just know entirely too much about Nuphorexia's transit system yeah. of giant engineered mouths and esophaguses. And if it has teeth, it goes like down. And if it doesn't have teeth, it goes up. Or something like that. It was there. There are systems to it. That was the one thing, Mister Robert B. Wintermute was very insistent upon making was making sure you knew which way the mouths went. Which way does the butt elevator go? Everyone who's ex- who's excited for a return to New Phyrexia needs to read the quest for Karn first to make sure that their expectations are low. Belay that order. You do not need to read Quest for Karn. <laughs> We do not. Do not. So I was being sarcastic. Do not under any circumstances read <laughs> the quest for Karn. I will tell you what happens if we go back there. And if I'm it matters actually, again. I'm, I'm very excited at the prospect of going back to New Phyrexia, but that's for way, that's a way future podcast. Way different topics. reasons. Yeah. Yes. Last week when I was talking about aggressively bad magic novels, the quest for Karn was that novel. Anyway, so outside we see Liliana resurrect a bunch of panther warriors from their last great battle to raise essentially as a diversion outside the stronghold. And I thought that was really cute because that that is like the plan every time for the Weatherlight. So all the way back in Tempest Block, when the Weatherlight crew finds themselves on Wrath, they ally themselves with the Elves of Sky Shroud, Eladomri, and the, the peoples of, of Wrath, which are the Core, the Vec, and the Dahl. And the Elves and the Core, Vec, and Dahl 
all assault the stronghold while the weatherlight sneaks in basically the back door. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing happens again with this revolution on Mercadia. It happens again in the invasion block with the stronghold again. <laughs> so it's like a, you know, you can't really have a weatherlight saga without a giant ineffectual army trying to fight and get inside while, you know, the actual heroes sneak inside to do whatever they're coming to do. But then their giant ineffectual army, uh, it becomes ineffectual when Yargle shows up. Yargle. Oh my god, this thing. So so, so I, I, I get it. Internally, you know, Slimefoot is going to be a meme character, so you make it part of the Weatherlight crew. You also print Yargle, and you know Yargle's going to be a meme character too. I did not expect though, both meme characters to actually appear in Dominaria's story. And, like, not just, like, Yargol is is real. This is going to be, like, a real battle thing. It's not just, like, a throwaway reference. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's pretty good. I'm, I'm very excited to see how that turns out, because they mentioned that Yargol is what originally killed the panther warriors that Liliana resurrected. And then inside the stronghold, Gideon and Chandra realize something's gone wrong because the assault hasn't started yet. And Whisper shows up, Belzenlock shows up, and Whisper demands all the prisoners get shoved into the fighting pit. And so Gideon just turns to Chandra and is like, Lady, I have invulnerability powers. Push me into the pit. I will be fine. Um, he didn't actually say that, but I was just like, that was just a moment for Chandra. I'm like, come on, you know he's going to be fine. Like, <laughs> the, the worst thing that's going to happen are his emotions are going to get bruised, but everything else about him will be fine. And that's where we end. It's a, uh, it's a really pers- good dramatic cliffhanger because we have a two-pronged plan and neither prong is going well at all. So that's fun. Let's see the heroes get out of this one. <laughs> so next week, let's talk speculation. Uh, next week... Uh, Andrew, why don't I let you talk about this one? Because I think you're the one who brought this up. Yeah, so the plan was for Liliana to cause this diversion with the Panther Warrior zombie army while Gideon goes and gets the Black Blade and kills Belzenlock with it. Here's the thing. We already know from the story spotlights that Liliana is going to be the one who finally kills Belzenlock with her magical powers. Gideon and the Black Blade don't factor into that. At least not on the card. We also know from the Black Blade's forged flavor text that Gideon is going to pick up the Black Blade with the intent to slay Nicol Bolas with it. Well, we know Bolas doesn't show up until Bezenlock is dead. We see these plans going wrong. So my guess is... Like, Gideon's not going to get the Black Blade until Belzenlock is dead and the cable disperses or whatever. And he's only going to be picking it up because Liliana's betrayal is going to forge in his mind the absolute necessity for him to wield this soul-drinking blade that he doesn't want to have anything to do with. Um, He talked about uh, his last line in Hour of Devastation when Bolas is telling him, like, live or die, I don't care. Gideon's last moment is that he finally has the resolve to kill Nicol Bolas that he lacked before. And I think that's what's going to drive this whole Black Blade thing with Gideon. It's going to be neat. 
I, th- I think they've set uh, dramatically set the story up pretty well. So, Carrie, do you want to talk about the unresolved threads that uh, either have to be wrapped up in episode 12 or we will have to wait for the next Dominaria block or the next set to hear about? So a lot of people want to see us included. A lot of people us included want to see the Jaya Jota reunion. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's like number one. Not going to happen. Doesn't that suck? I mean, it just isn't going to happen. There's not enough room in the story. I'm sure it could have happened under the two-set Dominaria block structure, but we'll have to see if that squeezes in anywhere unexpected. And without a kind of Aether Revolt finale level story-by-story thread tie-up, there isn't a lot of room to fit stuff like Zelfir returning, so that's pretty solidly out of um, the possibility. And... Yeah, those are the two biggest ones that I think we were kind of hinging on, or the Liliana Raven Man, which we kind of are. Raven Man definitely isn't happening. Yeah, we yeah. are aware that that's just not going to get wrapped up anytime soon. Um, so, side note, plug for myself here this will be coming out on Monday, the Tuesday afterwards. I have an interview with Nick Kelman, who is the uh, narrative designer for Magic. So, check that so out like tomorrow. because he talks about. Th- tomorrow so check that out uh because he talks about the vision for magic story going forward and i may or may not have asked about the raven man who knows yeah i was about to say that's pretty suspicious timing to bring that up but (laughs) yeah it's interesting to see what pretty obviously got cut from the dominaria story when it got crunched down to 12 stories and one set um and yeah, we'll, we're definitely not getting any ap- apocryphal legacy stuff. Like, that's all get on back burner. And unless there's specific Bolas threads on Dominaria that aren't Liliana Vess, I'd be surprised to see any of it slip into Magic Core 2019 outside of pretty neutral core set level storytelling. But yeah, I'm excited for it. It would be cool. Like, what I would really like to see in Core 2019 is a new Tetsuo Umazawa card. That'd be nice. Because one the, that isn't the old like, bad. Have a weird a lot janky of those ability. Legends. Yeah, a lot of those yeah. legends need new cards. Ramsey's Overdark, another Bolas associated character who could use an update. <laughs> <laughs> the other unresolved plot thread I wanted to mention is uh, Arvad and Tiana. Like, what's going on oh, with Tiana's yeah. connection to the Weatherlight? There are, you know, some some intriguing plot lines laying there so we definitely have material for a return to dominaria probably focused on returning zelfir i mean that's a pretty major plot thread yeah yeah that seems to be the biggest open thing on the plane is is teferi trying to get zelfir back where it belongs there are also still vodalians so potential return to dominaria could be all about (laughs) Hammered Empire's attempts to finally exterminate their fishy foes. We've seen very little of Tarissier and Jamura this time around, so hopefully next time uh, we'll focus on those two locations, especially or if ship. it's we a We didn't return, even see ship at all. Let's talk about that next week. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that next that week. That will be the finale. So finale, casualties. Do we think we'll have some? Big ones? Small ones? Yes? No? Not Slimefoot. I think at least one crew member will die. It's funny because I have a InQuest magazine that is from Invasion or Apocalypse set. 
and it has a whole bunch of little profiles at the bottom with the odds of them surviving through the set. And Urza was like absolutely definitely dead. I think Sisse was supposed to be dead according to their predictions, but didn't. And for everybody else, they pretty much nailed it on the head. But figuring out which crew members survive, I don't think they'd... I mean, probably not going to kill Joyro, Tefiri, or Karn. That's pretty solid bet. Or any of the Gatewatch. So yeah, I don't think we're going to see real like Planeswalker deaths until this final confrontation with Bolas on Ravnica. Also, don't kill Raph because he's a kid. That might be a good guideline. Also, he's amazing. Yeah, also he's a good character. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if any of those deaths align with plot resolutions that we've seen from like Arved and Tiana. Hopefully Martha didn't have to kill like the two favorite characters she wrote for. So, (laughs) or the two characters she got to create and write for. Prediction. What if Jaya dies and gives her spark to Teferi? Now that'd be nice. So he doesn't have to crunch down on that hard rock. Well, apparently he already did, by the way. (laughs) Off screen. Did they imply that he was basically a planeswalker again already? Yeah, so yeah. (sighs) So So they did just skip right over. Which means that we can self-insert that the crunch is canon. Like... Yeah, I, I say it. Let's let's take it to a vote. All in favor of crunching cannon? Aye. Yeah. Aye. There. The eyes have it. We so carried. teleporting a heart into somebody else as a spark transfer. I'm pretty sure we can have biting down <laughs> on a crystal as a spark transfer. <laughs> For real. All right. So final thoughts. Uh, I just want to mention I need a floopy goblin from a legendary floopy goblin from Battlebond. Uh... Battlebond has this warrior sub-theme, and warriors are appearing in all colors, and there's a merfolk warrior, and what the hell? We know that Homerids are warriors. They are a warrior race. This would have been perfect. Perfect time to have, like, a a Homerid pit fighter, but I I guess, (laughs) I mean... By the time y'all are listening to this, we'll have the full... Battlebond set, but at the time we're recording, we only know a handful of cards, so maybe there's a Homerid. I don't know. I hope so, but my gut feeling is we're not getting a Homerid in Battlebond, and that's just sad. And what Carrie? What I want to maybe bring to the attention of some of our more attentive listeners is that this episode, it was secretly a bottle episode. We actually stuck with the main three cast members. Um, we didn't use any extra sets. It's it's only us three. <laughs> that was the dumbest joke I could have made. <laughs> I still loved it. You, you know what's great, it, though? To be honest. What? Is that that's not true. I have actually been being played. Oh, no. By. Bring in an extra. Yeah. I have been played by Janet Jackson this whole time. You didn't uh, know that Janet Jackson could do voices this good, but she can. Hmm. Very, very <laughs> okay. convincing. So with that, I'd like to apologize <laughs> to our listeners for these and terrible the jokes. Uh, I'm not even going to offer one because whatever I offer is going to be worse than those two. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Have a good night, day, whatever.